Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Today I'm going to be talking about a very new theory that I'm very interested in. I feel optimistic that this theory of emotions is going to be around for a long time and that it is something that's worth familiarizing ourselves with. There is a classical view of emotions that has been around for a very long time, ever since, in fact, Darwin. Uh, and Darwin first noted that uh, his theory that emotions are a direct lineage of our evolutionary history, and that in many ways we can share, see our shared uh, behavioral lineage with species that go back to, certainly back to uh, the mammalian brain, uh, the midbrain that was, uh, goes back millions upon millions upon millions of years, and that essentially that our emotions are artifacts of our, uh, our the natural selection that over the course of millennia created our species. Um, just like the brain, if you looked at the brain, the brainstem is roughly similar to the brainstem that's in reptiles and the mammalian brain. Uh, is the midbrain. The limbic structures are very similar to structures in the uh, mammalian uh, species, you know, rats, cats, dogs, etc. And then you get to the forebrain, which is found largely in primates. And um, we, of course, have the most massive uh, frontal lobe. So the, the theory is that um, in our emotions, we're actually are attributable to regions of the brain that are distinct from the recent developments, that the epicenter of um, the emotions that we experience are rooted in early brain structures like the midbrain. And in fact, um, the theories of some very, very famous neuropsychologists like Jack Panset uh, is that there are these core basic survival emotions that we all have and that we share these emotions with animals. And things like rage, fear, lust, care, grief, playfulness, and um, that these are basic survival states that are rooted in subcortical regions of the brain. Um, and Pansep has done a lot of studies on animals trying to identify the exact regions and find these universal emotions. And this idea that our emotions are universal, they're transculture. So uh, there's a biological footprint uh, happiness, fear, anger, uh, grief, shock, and that from culture to culture, the physical sensations that we experience when we're happy would be the same for a tribe in the Amazon or for uh, people in Papua New Guinea. That cultures don't matter, that emotions are uh, essentially uh, both to our species, transhistorical, transcultural. They are universal by nature. Um, probably the, what, Damasio, the most, one of the most famous neuropsychologists of our time, says that emotions are reactions the body has to stimuli. <clears throat> when we're afraid of something, our hearts begin to race, our mouths become dry, our skin turns pale, and our muscles contract. 
the emotional reaction occurs automatically and unconsciously. So there's another big theme, that our emotions are automatic, that your conscious mind has very, very little to do with your emotions, that they are rooted in unconscious mechanisms, so you're alone for the ride. Once you're in a, uh, you're frightened, you are frightened, uh, and trying to talk yourself out of it is a waste of time. And uh, from this classical view, the only way to regulate our emotions would be, for example, some of the basic theories are one, to avoid triggering situations. If going uh, to, if speaking in public, uh, being in front of people creates fear, then you don't want to do that if you don't want to at least experience some fear. Or two, if you can't get around it, then you do exposure therapy. You expose yourself to spe speaking in small groups, allowing yourself to basically develop the stress tolerance to the feelings of fear, but there's nothing you can do about it at first. You're going, if something triggers you, it's going to trigger you. The emotions are rooted in these deep subcortical uh, regions of the brain, and that each emotional state has its own fingerprint. So for example, uh, just by feeling your body, you would know the difference when you're happy or when you're angry or when you're frightened. Etc. They all have their own unique footprint. Now, this was pretty much the unchallenged view uh, in dominant academic research up until really quite recently. And then a great neuroscientist right across the river at NYU, Joseph Ledoux, challenged this classic view. And he said, well, actually, when we've been, he just studies fear, and pretty much that's the focal point of Ledoux's research. He's become very famous for his work. And he proposed, actually, when you look at these core emotions, especially fear, you find that there's actually higher order cortical circuits, not lower, subcortical regions of the brain, but higher order. In other words, the conscious regions of the frontal lobe are actually much more involved than we previously thought. So, okay. Um, that's, that was interesting information. But then, quite recently, uh, another figure, uh, wonderful Lisa Feldman Barrett, and uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett is a psychologist, uh, a really distinguished professor at Northeast University. She's also at Harvard and at Massachusetts General Hospital, and she's written some 200 uh, clinic peer-reviewed papers and has also written now a very, very important uh, book culminating on her research in neuropsychology. And what she proposes is that the classic view of emotions is entirely wrong. Wow. She basically says everybody up until recently got it wrong. She's a revolutionary figure in emotions theory. And what she proposed is actually really quite astonishing, but I'm going to do my best to uh, describe her ideas and talk about them, why these ideas are important to us and how we can leverage them. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about the Buddha's uh, original take on emotions. So um, Lisa uh, Barrett, Feldman, uh, Feldman Barrett, excuse me, says that after 100 years of research, there has never been any biological footprint ever found for any emotion at all. And that while it's a theory that um, you know, we can see if you did experiments with lab rats that if you did something to trigger them, certain regions of their midbrain would light up that wouldn't light up if they were calm. But one of the, of course, interesting arguments is how could you tell if they were frightened or angry? They can't basically, they're, you know, uh, I don't believe in harming lab rats, but they're not. <coughs> very intelligent, they can't basically say, oh, right now I'm feeling a kind of sense of melancholy about the fact that, you know, I'm in this 
cage and I can't find my cheese. So, um, but in humans, and they do do lots of fMRI scans and facial EMGs, and they've never, ever been able to point and say, oh, consistently, when people are happy, this region of the brain is activated or this uh, uh, array of facial muscles becomes contracted at all. And so anger, for example, can occur with spikes in your blood pressure, but you could also have anger whether you're feeling absolutely no spike in your blood pressure. You could have uh, no activity in your, your uh, sym sympathetic um, nervous system, or you could. Fear could occur, as has been famously shown, can involve activating your amygdala, but Ledoux noticed, in fact, actually people can have fear without any activation of their amygdala, which is at the core of the limbic structure of the brain. Um, you can experience sadness and grief without having any spike of adrenaline whatsoever. And some people express sadness and grief with tears and heavy eyes, but some people go absolutely stoic. Some people can experience an enormous amount of rage while they're wearing a smile. That literally, they're oh, so happy. I'm going to kill you. Um, let me read what uh, she wrote in, um, actually this is a, from an interview. Emotions aren't in your face and they aren't, they're not in your body. Physical movements have no intrinsic emotional meaning. That's pretty interesting. An emotion must be connected to a context and that's what makes them meaningful and what determines what emotion you're experiencing. That's how we know that a smile might mean sadness, crying might mean happiness, and people do cry when they're really, really happy. And a stoic still face might mean that you're angrily plotting the demise of your enemy. So what she is proposing is that, in fact, you cannot look at any body sensation or physical sensation and know exactly what emotion it has a correlate to. So what is her theory of emotion? Uh, I'm going to try to explain it. Um, it's not, at first, it's not entirely intuitive, like the classical view is very intuitive, much like the idea that the Earth is the center of the universe is very intuitive, because it certainly appears that way. And it certainly appears to us being logical thought uh, dependent species that has lots of inner chatter and wants to be in control of our world and our feelings that emotions seem to be these completely out of control entities and therefore they must be stemming from the lower brain and when I feel my emotions I certainly feel things in my body so they must be embodied and not cognitive but actually uh, her theory is very very different so her theory basically runs a little bit like this, and I'm going to, of course, do her injustice in that to give a half an hour talk on a major clinical theory of emotions in a half an hour is kind of a joke, but I still do things like that. Uh, uh, so she'll probably be, uh, if she knew that this was happening, she would be all against it. But um, So the brain evolved to essentially uh, keep the body healthy. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, the, the brain grew out of the, the uh, and the brain stem grew out of the spinal cord, the nervous system. The nervous system is there to report sensations in the body up to uh, essentially a center so that we can make adaptive behaviors to survive. So yes, the brain, without any doubt, evolve to keep our bodies healthy. And she says, when there's something that negatively affects our body's health, our, well, our physiological well-being, we have feelings. Feelings are essentially sensations that feel bad. Uh, and we have, so we feel discomfort. And there's, uh, if something's good for our bodies, 
we generally have positive feelings. And I hope that this is so far <laughs> pretty uh, easy to follow. So uh, we have feelings that let us know whether things are good for our body or bad for our body. And she says that feelings are very basic summaries of what's going on inside of us. Essentially, you could think of it like a thermostat. That's what your feelings are. But feelings for her are very simple uh, states of comfort or discomfort, and they actually do not tell you what to do. They're simply feelings of agitation, pain, discomfort, or feelings of ease, your, your muscles relax, a sense of, of non-movement, but they do not, by in and of themselves, give you any direction on how to act. They're simply reporting back, like a thermostat reports back whether the room is warm or whether it's cold. Your feelings are thermostats that report back if something's good for your body or bad for your body. When you eat, which is generally good for your body, you feel full, dopamine raises, you feel relaxed, comfortable, you can rest. That's a good feeling. Um, now, here's where it gets a little bit more complicated, but I think I can explain it in a way that's pretty easy to follow. Um, inner theory, over time, our brain doesn't wait for things to affect our bodies. It actually predicts whether certain situations will be good for our body or not, and so it creates feelings before the events actually happen. Well, this is very important because in the classical theory, you have to wait until something happens before you have an emotional response or any feeling. But she's already saying something that's very different, that our feelings, by the time we're adults, they don't wait for something to be bad for us. They actually create a feeling in anticipation. So if you were frightened of, uh, if you had, at one point in your life, spoken in public in third grade and every kid laughed at you around you and you felt that you felt a sense of social rejection then later on in your life if your best friend's getting married and asks you to give a toast at their wedding maybe for weeks in advance before the wedding thinking about speaking in public or just the knowledge that you're going to speak in public might actually create a negative feeling you might feel your stomach tight you might feel your chest contract. So the actual event is still weeks, if not months away, but you're already feeling negative feelings. Are you following me? So um, the idea is that models, uh, these are what called models, or uh, they essentially predict which situations are going to be good for us and which situation is going to be bad for us. and well before the events occur, we have negative or positive feelings. Predictions help make sense of, these models or predictions make sense of the world quickly and help us survive. We feel, for example, a sense of uh, discomfort well before we reach, we reach the edge of a cliff. Uh, you know, when we fall over, we might start to get a sense of queasiness, maybe as we get even within 20 feet of a cliff. Um, we feel a sense of hunger before, well before we feel dizzy and start, before we become dizzy and faint. We feel, experience thirst well <coughs> before we become dehydrated, hopefully. So the brain over time learns how to predict bad things for us well before they actually occur. So here's where emotions come in. We have these models that predict when things are, essentially feelings can predict when things are going to be bad or good for us. And emotions are higher order processes that tell us what to do in a situation, in a certain context, when we have a certain goal. So. I'm going to give you some examples of this, but her, the most important thing to understand is that feelings 
which are body sensations and emotions are actually two very different things. A feeling is simply saying something's going to be good or bad for me, but the emotion is a state that of impulses that tell us what to do. And they are actually activated by higher regions of the brain, and they're very much determined upon our goals and the situation we're in. So that's why in certain situations, tears could mean sadness or tears could mean celebration. It's because all emotions are uh, set by the goal we have for ourselves and also set by the situation. So let me give you some examples because I think that so far is a little bit abstract and confusing. So suppose you, and this actually happened to me, suppose you have a, uh, you sign a book contract and the longest thing you've ever written was in college where you managed to churn out 10 pages and it felt like your life was ending. And writing those 10 pages back in the 1980s required massive consumptions of cocaine. And now you're sober and you've signed a book contract to write a 240-page book. This is actually my true story. <laughs> so when it comes time to sit down at the, the Mac Air and to start writing it, if you, if I, when I tell myself, okay, I have to write my book now, I have to churn out 240 pages, and I sat there, and suddenly I became overwhelmed with a sense of dread, a sense of I can't do this, I literally froze with a sense of just great humiliation that what have I done, I'm going to look like an idiot, blah, 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 blah. Then what I did was I changed the goal entirely, and I said, you know what, today I'm going to sit down and I'm not going to write anything for my book, and I'm just going to have fun, and none of this I'm going to use, and I'm going to just throw it all away. Well, instantly I started churning out copy that wound up in the book because, and it changed the emotion entirely. The stimuli was exactly the same. I was sitting in front of a laptop having to write, but because I changed the goal, the emotional response I had was entirely different. Now, from the classical theory of emotions, I was facing the same stimuli. I should have had the same emotional response. But all I changed was not the situation, even much the situation, I changed the goal. Instead of trying to write my book, I'm actually not going to try to write my book. I'm just going to have fun and throw this all away. At an airport, suppose you're waiting on the boarding gate and it's right before they call out whatever group you're in. For me, it's always the last group. You know, they've already asked everybody that conceivably has any kind of credit card or sky mileage or is in some club or another, and they've had all, and then they finally get, you know. But there's a line waiting for, you know, whatever uh, group you're in, and suddenly a whole group of people cuts in front of you, right? Well, in the classical theory of emotions, I should feel the same thing, which is a degree of anger and unfairness, uh, because um, seeing from our evolutionary perspective, seeing other animals getting to the food supply that I've, I've claimed would be very much in my disadvantage. So from the evolutionary perspective, this should not be something that I like at all. This should be create, activate territorial uh, feelings in me uh, or impulses, and I should feel anger. And, uh, but from Feldman Barrett's perspective, and this actually I found to be very true, it really depends on what my goal is in that situation. For instance, if I have carry-on luggage and my goal is to make sure at all costs I get a good place to put my carry-on right above my seat, then seeing people cut in line would actually very likely activate anger. But suppose 
I've checked my carry-on. And this is, by the way, why I check my carry-on. Then I've got nothing I'm racing for. I've already got a seat assigned. And therefore, now, there's a possibility that I might get a little irritated or I might not care at all. Because it will not have any implication on where I sit at all. And in fact, this is why I always check my carry-on, because I don't want to get pissed off. I always change the goals so that I don't have to feel the negative emotions. So uh, another perspective, another example. Uh, I'm sitting at home. Uh, I have an afternoon where I don't have anyone scheduled. And I'm spending the time to read more of Lisa Feldman Barrett's book. And I'm just sitting there. And suddenly somebody rings my front door. Because a lot of people who come by counseling uh, know where I live. Or maybe I forgot that I had a, a time scheduled or whatever. So there somebody is. Now, uh, if from a classical perspective, just being alone and having somebody ring the bell, I should feel a sense of joy or excitement. But suppose, and if I was in a state where I wanted to connect with people, then I would feel joy and excitement hearing the doorbell ring. But suppose I wanted an afternoon off, where I didn't have to talk with anyone, and I just wanted to sit with a good book and unwind and not have to uh, be engaged in a conversation. Well, actually, that stimuli would trigger irritation, right? Can't I just have a little time to myself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The same stimuli is creating an entirely different emotional response, entirely based on what my goal is for that, that time. Likewise, the physiological sensations in all those situations might be the same. If I'm sitting at home reading and I want time to myself and I hear the doorbell, I feel startled and would orient towards it and I feel this impulse to see who's there. But still my emotion would be irritated. But suppose I was looking forward to having more company. I'd have the exact same physiological senses. I'd still be startled by the doorbell and I'd still orient myself to the door and I'd still have an action impulse to get out. So the physical body sensations are the same, the stimuli is the same, but the emotional response is entirely different. Sometimes the goals we carry around with us are not conscious, they're unconscious. And so we might need to reflect a little bit on what goals we bring into every situation to know how to adjust them. One of the classical goals that causes a lot of needless emotional distress is the goal to have always people like us. Albert Ellis, great American psychologist, noted that that was the primary culprit in so much of uh, needless suffering, this idea that it's our job to get everybody to like us. Unconscious goals are things like life should always be easy, I should always be masterful and skilled at everything I do. Everybody should like me. And almost all those goals will create negative emotions because they are unattainable. By these examples, we already see that the classical idea of emotions, that they're rooted in stimuli and response, that each emotion has its own separate body sensations, may very well not be true that actually the situation and my goals play a far more important role in creating emotions. Now, if this is the case, if we do have more control in our emotions, uh, emotional um, states, that we're not at the mercy of deeply evolutionarily installed circuits in the brain which push us to be angry all the time given a certain set of stimuli that it's inevitable that if somebody comes up to me and is brusque I have to feel angry but actually I might just feel sad about humanity or I might not care that actually the goal that I'm in plays a big 
role, then we can actually have far more tools in regulating our emotions than we previously thought. And there's a lot of uh, therapeutic modalities that have based themselves entirely on the classical view. That the only, for instance, a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy at first based itself on using exposure therapy, modulating um, uh, activations, and so forth to stress tolerance. But actually, now there's suddenly a lot more tools available to us in regulating and even changing the way certain situations have emotional responses. So the biggest tool, and she doesn't really go into this in her book, I'm just reading from the implications of her research and actually turning it into uh, sort of tools we can use, is that one, the more we set for ourselves attainable goals on a day-by-day -day basis, rather than constantly have larger unattainable or difficult to attain goals that we, can, that we hold, um, makes it far less likely that any setback, frustrating event, uh, obstacle will be greeted with anger or frustration or sadness. Two, the more we really drink in positive experiences, according to her theory, that will build positive expectations, not negative ones. And therefore, the feelings that are triggered would be far more positive. And while there's no finger, physiological fingerprint for any given emotion, but there's still some indication that you're more likely to have a positive emotion if you have a positive feeling beneath it. Um, most important, that the way we interpret experience is very, very, very important in the generation of emotions. If we focus on interpreting things in terms of that they could still be conducive to a goal, just a different goal than we originally had in mind, then theoretically the emotional responses will be far more regulated. So I'm going to give you a specific example. Uh, and I came up with this, and again, this is you know just one possible example. Uh, but uh, the speaking in public. So suppose given in third grade when I spoke in public, this didn't actually happen, but suppose somebody asked me to show my finger painting to the rest of the class, and everybody laughed at me. And so before I had to speak in public every time, there would be a negative feeling, like my heart would start to pound, and or my stomach would clench, or my throat would tighten. Well, that's a feeling. But according to Feldman Barrett, I don't have to turn that feeling into fear. I could actually interpret those sensations entirely different and then create a different emotion. So suppose I actually taught myself when I had those feelings to interpret it as excitement. As, whoo, this is going to be fun. Actually, I could do that. I would simply have to start to read those body sensations no longer as necessarily meaning I'm feeling fear. I would now, each time I experience those sensations, I would announce to myself and others, oh, I'm feeling excited. Now, in fact, very often people confuse the physiological um, feelings with, with different emotions. I once met and worked with a woman who told me that for a long time she associated her racing heartbeat uh, when she met a guy, the racing heartbeat and the sort of feeling of, of sudden like energy that flooded in her mind, she read it as desire. And it was many years later that she realized that it was telling her very different things. She didn't know if it was anger or if it was fear or sadness, but she had always interpreted those feelings as, oh, I'm excited, I'm into this guy. But actually, 
very often she was misinterpreting the physiological sensations and turning them into the wrong emotion. So we're doing this all the time. We've over time decided that certain physical sensations always mean we're sad or depressed or frightened or angry or happy. But actually, uh, according to Feldman Barrett's work, we should spend more time asking ourselves, well, wait, what is the situation? Does this necessarily mean I'm in this emotional state? And in fact, could I interpret these sensations differently? So, if you haven't guessed, um, in a moment I'm going to get into a meditation where we're actually going to do that. We're going to practice seeing if we can interpret uh, situations or uh, people a little differently. So, um, lastly, I just wanted to note that from the classical Buddhist sense, you might wonder, well, where does the Buddha land on it? Does he land on emotions or these evolutionary holdovers that are always pre-conscious, or are they, is there an important role in our cognitive intentions and goals? Well, it turns out the Buddha came on, landed on both sides. Um, there's a very important teaching, the Paticca Samapada, where the Buddha says that feelings that are pre-conscious play a determinative role in which emotions we experience, tanha, and they create our thinking, upadana. But there's another teaching, uh, Eightfold Path, where the Buddha says that one of the most important formative um, uh, components of happiness, peace of mind, and our emotional state is what our intentions are and goals are in any situation. And in the suttas where he describes right intention, he talks about how they are foremost in creating positive mind states. So the answer is, I don't know where the Buddha landed, <laughs> but, and I don't even know where I land on this. I just thought it was interesting enough to give a talk on, lead a meditation using, and then you can decide for yourself if this is something you would like to practice in your own life. So thanks for listening. And now we're going to meditate together. and just allow your body without any conscious supervision to come to an upright position that feels really balanced. But when it comes to <coughs> posture and sitting, try not to think your way into good balance, actually, because you can't. Uh, your left hemisphere, which is... Uh, the uh, host of the bulk of our critical language-based thought has very few synaptic connections to your body. Your right brain, which uh, is where the host of synaptic connections to the body uh, doesn't tend to think its way into posture. It just feels its way in. And now let's just listen to the sound of the air conditioner. Just hearing whatever sounds are present. I like using sound in meditation because it keeps awareness a little more spacious. It doesn't mean it allows us to be more aware of sensations that are not just limited to somatic, physiological, interoception. But now we are going to bring our awareness into the body. 
And take a really full in-breath through the nose and squinch all the muscles in your face if you like, clench the jaw, pinching the nose, furrowing the forehead, tightening those micro-muscles around the eyes, and then breathe out slowly through the mouth and just soften everything you've contracted. So allow the muscles in a forehead to release, or smooth out the forehead, unclench the jaw, release any tension around the eyes and encourage your eyes to settle. Actually, when the eyes settle and stop bouncing around behind the eyelids, then the mind really follows suit. So think of your eye sockets as two warm pools where your eyes can float. And just encourage them to take a break to relax in those hot tubs. Take a little vacation for your eyes. And now for our second full in-breath, lift the shoulders up really high. Just get them up around the ears. And then as you breathe out through the mouth, rotate the shoulders back and drop your arms. <coughs> like suddenly both of your arms went completely lifeless and just fell away from your body. And in rotating the shoulders back, we've opened up the chest, which has put us in a far more confident, dominant posture. And for the third breath, balloon the belly, the abdomen out as you breathe in and then as you breathe out through the mouth, soften relax the belly, just allow it to return to a natural position. And from this point on in the meditation, let's just breathe in to a soft belly. When you breathe in, feel the belly expand. And then as you very slowly release the breath, just allow the abdomen to return to a relaxed setting. So in opening up the chest, releasing the tightness of the musculature in the face and softening the belly, we've addressed three principal areas of the vagus nerve. Hopefully that will engage our parasympathetic nervous system. And that's generally a state of being that we go into when we're safe and the body is well taken care of. Let's focus in the meditation on inclining the mind to exhalations that are as long, and slow, and smooth as possible. The longer your exhalations, the more likely vagal break is activated, slowing down your heart rate, lowering your blood pressure, releasing acetylcholine. informing your mind via the insula that you're okay, not under any threat.
And now that we've adjusted the body, let's adjust the mind. And all we're going to do is try to visualize a place that is very much a destination for us, a place we long to go to establish frame of mind where we have nothing to do, nowhere to go, where the mind can just let go of any nagging stories or unresolved business. So for some of us that might be a secluded place on a beach, for some of us it might be a hammock in a mountain or a, by a lake, an Adirondack around that chair in a, in a very nice soothing backyard. And as you might visualize this place, just try to remind yourself of what your body feels like when you're at in this location and what your mind is like when you've got nothing to do, when any thoughts of what's going on in the rest of your life is not interesting, when you allow your mind to come to a complete stop where it's no longer racing ahead of you into the future. sit for a while in silence and setting a different goal to reduce the amount of frustration we might experience or difficulty. The goal is not to have a necessarily quiet, settled, immediately peaceful mind that stays fully present. The goal is simply to observe whatever I'm experiencing. And if I drift away in thought, and I become aware of that, and I bring my mind back, and it happens over and over again, that's fine. Because I was watching that happening. So any outcome is OK while I'm meditating. My goal is simply to sit here and just watch as my brain does whatever it does.
still at this time just allow the sensations of the body, the sounds, just to recede a little bit in your awareness. And then find the movie screen in your mind where you visualize or imagine situations. For many of us it feels roughly or we might sense our forehead or behind our eyes. You could practice by visualizing your room to see where that roughly is. And now I'd like you to either recall or imagine a situation where somebody is being utterly indifferent to how you feel. In fact, maybe their behavior is even indicating that they don't regard you with any sense of positive wishes. Somebody is conveying through their actions that they really don't care about you. A set of stimuli that traditionally would activate the degree of anger or irritation. If you can't remember somebody who's in some way treated you poorly, then just visualize that scenario. See if you can make the scene or the situation as accurate as possible so you start to feel feelings, which are very basic senses of this isn't good for me. And then see if you could sense what emotion you might turn such a situation into. Given that most of us have an unconscious or perhaps conscious goal of having people like us as much as possible, when someone behaves in ways that indicate that goal isn't being met, then we would construct an emotion of either disappointment, irritation, or anger. But suppose we change the goal. Now our goal is no longer to have people like us all the time. Our goal is just to be as authentic as we can and to learn from people's responses, which people to stay away from in the future, and which to stay with. And that, in fact, this behavior is making our life easier. Now this person is simply informing us that they are no longer someone we should gravitate towards in any way in the future. So their behavior is in fact helpful. And if you really can learn to change the goal, you very well might find that the emotion associated with this event changes as well.
Now let's take another scenario. Visualize a social situation where you don't know anybody, where there's nobody that you can rely on for easy conversation. It's a situation even where you might feel some obligation to engage with people, but there's nobody there that you know. It's a gathering of strangers. And then see if you can feel which feelings might arise in this situation. Would your stomach get tight? Would you start to feel your heart race slightly? Would you start to feel your forehead tighten? Would muscles in the back of your neck contract? most we might be tempted to assume that the emotion we're in based on whatever we're feeling might be discomfort desire to leave maybe stress See if you could interpret the body sensations in an entirely different way. Could they simply be interpreted as now I have to get to work. Now I have to do something out of my comfort zone. That could be the growth opportunity. It can simply be interpreted as vigilant. Lastly, visualize some experience in our life we feel embarrassed about. Something about ourselves maybe we don't like. Either visualize or bring to mind something that we struggle with. Some it might be our awkwardness in situations or our struggle to sound relaxed or issues with our appearance, issues with how much we've attained in life.
once again, let's change the goal from always appearing effortless, achieving, looking good to others. Set a new goal to be as authentic and reveal in life all of ourselves to embrace and accept every part of ourselves in all its different guises. If that was our goal, how would it change the feelings and emotions we associate with the parts of ourselves we generally feel or experience sadness or frustration with? of how we feel internally and also be aware of what's around us, the sights, colors, and then when you're ready, allow yourself to return to a balanced awareness. <laughs> 